Hi, Crossroads. I'm Jessica. Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. Today marks the launch of a new teaching series called Believing Like Jesus. And the best way for you to connect and engage with the teaching is to join a journey group. You can start a journey group or join a group. Beginning this week, these groups will meet eight times on campus, in homes, in workspaces, or online to discuss the weekend message and explore fresh expressions of healthy spirituality. Obviously, these groups can happen all over the world, so jump in, invite your friends, family, or colleagues along with you and start a group. You can go to crossroadscolorado.com slash groups for more details and to register for any of our groups or simply check the box on today's connect card. Now, I will also drop a shortcut link in today's show notes. And in the show notes, you will also find a link to the weekly connect card. That card is for everyone every time we gather. Regular listeners, put your name and email down and check the box, regular listener or regular attender. If you're new to the podcast, give as much information as you feel comfortable sharing and check the box, I'm new here. You can use this card to register for activities, request information, or leave comments and prayer requests. It's also a great place for you to say, I am listening to the podcast or I'm part of the podcast. Now, hang on to that card. By the end of the show, you will probably have more to add. And since you might be listening from the car or on a walk or a run, just remember that all the links I mentioned today are available in the show notes and you can come to them later. Well, here comes Ryan teaching on week one of Believing Like Jesus. And then I will send us out with a few things at the end. I was joking, our founding pastor, John Smith, if I could just have a conversation with him real quick. Um, I, was, I was joking around with uh, Glenn. I said, so you made it 17 years with John and two with me. What is that all about? I said, I don't quite understand. I don't know. I was, I was offended by his retirement, so I don't know. No, what a good guy. So good to see everybody today. Hey, if you are a guest this morning, and I'll let you classify yourself as that. I don't know what that looks like for you, but if you're a guest today, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and it's my privilege to just get to serve our volunteers and our team and our congregation, our community. Uh, If you are a guest, please do me a favor. Fill out as much of that Connect card as you feel comfortable and just check that box. I'm new here. We'd love to get you some information. If you're tuning in online for the first time, thank you so very much for uh, taking the time to listen in. If you're listening on demand as well, appreciate that. If you're out in the atrium, welcome. Do me a favor, write this down, 207-207-608-1111. 
1106 standard text messaging rates do apply, but that's my cell phone number. And if you uh, would ever like to have coffee, if you'd ever like to connect, I would love to get to know you as an individual better if this is your first time, or maybe you've been here for 25 years and we've never gotten to connect personally. I would love to do that. That is my cell phone number, so you can send me a text message. Also, if you're not in the room or if you're in the room, you can do this. Wherever you are, whenever you're listening or watching this, do me a favor, snap a selfie and send it to that number. I would love to see your face, put your name in there, and uh, I would just love to know who you are. And uh, I'll even pray for you when I see that, if there's something I can be praying for you about. My prayers mean nothing more or less than yours. Don't think of it like that, but happy to do that, okay? So we're launching a brand new series here today called Believing Like Jesus. And today is about starting with why? And I feel like I should recognize the elephant in the room. I do know that the Denver Broncos kick off today somewhere around 11. Uh, and so I just want you to know right now, you will never be home in time for that. Never. <laughs> Okay, so everybody just breathe. If you're at home, you can tune out whenever you want. If you're in the room, you weren't smart enough to log on. I don't know. I, I can't help that. Um, but I, I can be bought. I can be bought. Uh, so it usually takes five or six zeros to end. We could end at 11 for the right price today. I could even end at 1045 for the right price. Let's be honest. You want to pay the mortgage on this place, we'll end at 1015. I will actually get a time machine, travel back in time. We'll end 15 minutes ago and call it a day. So uh, we're launching a brand new series called Believing Like Jesus, and today's about starting with the question, why? Why does it really matter what Jesus believed? Why does it matter at all? And uh, that might seem like a strange question to you if you would consider yourself a Christian or a church person or a follower of Jesus, whatever words you like to use. That might seem like an odd question, but it probably isn't an odd question if you're kind of new to the whole faith thing. If you're like, well, why does it matter? Like, why are we even worried about what Jesus believed? I know what I'm supposed to believe. I know what I've been told to believe, right? What does that look like? But I have to say, like, I'm excited about this series because I'm a Jesus guy. Uh, I'm really not a religious person. Uh, I'm not into, like, church politics. I'm not into denominational politics. I'm not into, I mean, I, I know this is really scary. I'm not into doctrinal, like, art arguments and things like that. I'm happy to discuss that and everything, but I'm just, I just think the person of Jesus is amazing, absolutely fascinating. This, this historical person, this Mediterranean Jewish peasant who walked this earth over 2,000 years ago changed the world. He, lived in a, he grew up in a little teeny tiny village called Nazareth. Historically speaking, we believe that's actually very accurate. There was, you know, depending upon who you ask, uh, there might have been as few as 200 people in this little village. Uh, being of the peasant class, Jesus probably couldn't read. He probably couldn't write. We have no, there's no reason to believe from a historical perspective that Jesus would have ever had access to learn those things. And yet, here we are today. Like the whole world is affected by this person of history. And so we want to take time, and I'm excited to explore this person and to look at this person of Jesus and ask the question as best as we can, what did Jesus believe? And one of the reasons why this is such an important question, if you just remove Jesus out of it, why is it important to think about what anybody believes? And here's the big crux. This, you could actually, if you're a big-time Denver Broncos fan, you could fill in this fill-in and drop your offering in the offering bucket on the way out or the kiosk. Uh, you can log off and, and feel like, okay, I got it. I got it. Really, literally, this is it. I mean, the rest of it's all made up after this, okay? It's... <laughs> It's all a great fiction, right? No, Here, here's the thing. Belief determines behavior. 
Belief determines behavior. If you want to boil it down to why we're going to spend the next eight weeks and really why we could spend the next eight years, honestly, looking at what we think Jesus believed, what the earliest of followers believed that Jesus believed, because that's really our access. You know, Jesus didn't ever write one thing down. We have nothing written by the person Jesus. All we know where we get all of our information from, and the, really the earliest kind of historical data from true historians doesn't come to us until maybe 60 years after Jesus died from the uh, Jewish historian Josephus is where we kind of first see this historical figure. He never wrote anything down, never any of that. But, but belief determines our behavior. Like you want to know what somebody believes, look at their behavior. You want to know what somebody believes is of value, look at their checkbook, how they well, do you know what a checkbook is? We've gone over this before. Uh, I apologize. Look at their bank account. Look at their Venmo, right? Whatever, however that works today, right? Belief determines behavior. How we believe about something or someone will determine the way in which we act towards them or towards that thing. So if you believe that a restaurant is amazing, you will go wait in line at that restaurant for as long as you, want. you have to. How many of you are under the illusion that In-N-Out Burger is good? <laughs> Some of you immediately are like, oh, that I'll leave over. That I will leave over, right? I had my first In-N-Out Burger experience because so many of you, especially the Kayas, have just told me how amazing this is. You built it up way too much, right? Like, I had this, this thing, and I was like, what in the world is so special about this, right? So like belief determines behavior. People will wait in line for hours and hours and hours because they believe In-N-Out Burger and fries are the best thing ever, right? Now, I will never again, never again wait in a line for an In-N-Out. You want to bring me one? That's fine. I'll eat it. But I'll never again wait in a line for that. It's just not worth it, right? So belief determines behavior. What you believe about a restaurant, what you believe about people. If you believe that someone is trustworthy, you will let them borrow your tools, right? If you, if you have a neighbor who has shown themselves that they will return what they borrow, you'll let them borrow, you'll let them borrow things. And I keep telling Glenn, I will eventually return his tools. I'm sorry, I just keep forgetting. That just reminds me, I need to bring those in to Glenn now that he's retired. But if you don't believe someone is trustworthy, you're not gonna let them borrow anything. You're not going to certainly give them something that you find of value. You're not going to give them your truth. You're not going to give them like your vulnerability if you've seen them trample on other people. But what about if you've never met them? Right, so we have firsthand experience, right? We have the in and out experience, right? We have the people we work with. We go to work, we understand. We're like, you know what? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I got that right. I usually don't get that one right right? That's fine. But what if you've never met somebody? What if all you have to go by is what other people are telling you? You start brand new at a job, and, and then somebody's giving you the tour, and they walk by an office, and they're like, well, be careful of so-and-so. And no matter how hard you try, they might follow that statement up with, but I'll let you form your own opinion. And you know that's impossible now. Like, that person is already starting way behind the start line, right? So all we have to go by are other people's opinions. That's all I had to go by with in and out And y'all failed me. <laughs> failed me miserably. We trust that. We go by that. But, and it, the same is true, I think, when we talk about God. 
When we talk about God, when we talk about the divine, when we talk about Jesus, at the end of the day, to ask like questions of God, of the divine, of the universe, right? Whatever words you like to use for that all-encompassing, invisible reality that holds everything together, right? Most of us, we've never like had a, like a, a full-on like face-to-face conversation with God. I personally not, don't need that in my life. I'm good. Like, I'm grateful that I've got, like, the Bible and, and the history. Like, I'm, I'd rather do that than come face-to-face with that which was behind the Big Bang. There is a lot of power there, right? But the reality is we've, most of us don't ever have that, like, one-on-one kind of moment. And so where do we get our beliefs about God, about the universe, about what is invisible, coursing through, propelling us forward? Because the truth is many of our beliefs about God, they come to us from our culture, what we grew up with, the, 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 the nature of the values of a culture, like our American culture has given to us a lot of our ideas about God. And so we then, we, rather than saying, oh wait, that's my value, that's a cultural value, we want to baptize it and say, no, that's God's value. And we do this all over the world, whatever culture we're in. Many of our beliefs about God, they come from our own experiences in life. If your experience has for the most part been kind of like a middle class, upper middle class experience, you just kind of have this impression like this is what God is like and this is what the good life is and and everything is kind of good and it's great. But if you've had like experiences outside of that, your understanding will be different. If your life has been filled with tragedy, if your life has been filled with oppression, like that's that's going to affect the way in which and what you believe about God, what I believe about God. And then what is an obvious, like a duh moment, everybody just say duh. I mean, as I'm telling you this, you're like, why did you even say this out loud? If you didn't say that, you could get us out of here two minutes earlier, Ryan. But here's the truth. A lot of our beliefs about God come from religion. They come from religion. (laughs) You're like, oh yeah, duh. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ryan. Your insight is amazing. It's brilliant, okay? Uh, The reason why I say that (laughs) is because I'm a person who differentiates between religion and God. I differentiate the two. They are not the same. Christianity is not the same as Jesus. It's not the same as God. Buddhism is not the same as God. Hinduism is not the same as God. I think that religion is a way in which we try to understand. It's the framework that we see the world. 82 per, 83% of the world's population fits into these big 12 kind of broad categories of different religions. The five largest religions of the world are Christianity, Islam, Judaism, um, Buddhism, and Hinduism. Within Christianity alone, we have something like 3,000 expressions, right? So I differentiate the reality of God from the religions which help us understand and put language to what is a great mystery. And it's dangerous, and it's problematic, and it's important to pause and say, what is the framework with which I will define and understand the divine, that I'll encounter the divine? Because unhealthy beliefs about God will eventually produce unhealthy behavior for God. Right? Unhealthy beliefs about God produce unhealthy behavior for God. Dangerous beliefs about God produce dangerous behavior for God. We see that in our world. Violent beliefs about God produce violent behavior for God. So given all of that, like, should we just pack it up? (laughs) Should we just call it a day? Can we have any sense of security in our knowledge of God? Well, I think, first of all, I don't know. (laughs) 
Like, if I'm honest, like, there is this reality that, man, there's just so much plurality in our understanding of God, and there's so much division. That's, that's come, sometimes I do think maybe we are just, like, destined to live under the kind of condemnation, the reality of what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah 55 says. Isaiah 55 says, God is saying this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So is that the end of it? Do we just go, oh, okay, well, all right. Well, there it is right there. What are we doing? I, I feel like, okay, maybe, maybe we need like a little orphan Annie decoder pin. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all seen the Christmas story, that movie? One of my favorite things about Christmas, right, is that on Christmas Day, they show a marathon of the Christmas story, this story that takes place in the 1940s, a little boy named Ralphie, who, what does Ralphie want? A Red Rider BB gun. He's trying to convince everybody, his teacher, Santa Claus, his parents, everybody, this is the perfect gift. And one of the great scenes in this movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, log off, like to... Tune out. I don't know if you haven't seen it. No, it's not my fault now. <laughs> right? So, and there's this one scene where, like, he's been waiting for so long to get his entrance into the Little Orphan Annie Secret Society. And it's decoder pin because at the end of every radio broadcast, the announcer, right, uh, Pierre is his name, gives a series of numbers, and you have to decode the numbers to get the secret message. And so he has drank like 4,000 gallons of Ovaltine to qualify to get into this secret society. And you have this scene where he runs out to the mailbox, and he pulls it out. And if you remember back in the day when you got mail in front of your house, not in some cluster of mailboxes somewhere in your neighborhood that you don't know where it is, you know, you have to walk eight miles to get to it. Y'all do that so weird here. Uh, but at any rate, um, that's why you have this scene. He pulls it out and he runs inside and he rips it open and he can't wait because he got his letter, right? And the letter says, be it known to all and sundry that Ralph Parker is hereby appointed a member of the Little Orphan Annie Secret Circle and is entitled to all the honors and benefits occurring thereto. <laughs> Signed by Little Orphan Annie herself. And... Pierre Andre, the announcer, of course. And so he, he gets, and he just can't wait for the broadcast to be over with. He doesn't really care about the story. Uh, you know, Pierre then calls, oh, get all, all of our little secret orphan Annie Society members, gather, get your pencils. He's writing down, he, he goes to the bathroom, right, in the movie, because that's the only place a nine-year-old boy could get privacy in his house, right? So he goes and he locks the door and he takes the code that he's been given of all these numbers and he turns the little orphan Annie pin, gets it to the right setting that he's been told, and he starts to decipher the message. And all of a sudden you hear in the background, his little brother is like screaming, he's got to go to the bathroom, you know? And then mom is like yelling at him, you open the door, Ralphie! And he's like, I'm fine! Like screaming, there's this intense music behind it and he's getting all done. And then at the end of the day, what does it say? Drink more, be sure to drink more Ovaltine. Right? And he says, a crummy commercial? A crummy commercial? And the scene concludes with Ralphie, as like all of us can imagine, a nine-year-old boy, like in the bathroom by himself, in, in the biggest moment of frustration of his entire life, just lets out the choicest of swear words in that moment. He's like, son of a biscuit but he doesn't say biscuit, right? Like he just lets it fly in that moment, right? Because he's so disappointed. 
And I thought about that scene, and I thought, I wonder if maybe the decoders that we've used to think about God have just left us so disappointed. And they've just left us going, wait a second, is it really a commercial for a bigger building? Is it really a commercial for better music? Like, what is it all about? And we've experienced spiritually that disappointment. And what I want to do today for just the next few moments is quickly explore, maybe God gave us a decoder pin. And maybe that decoder pin can help us actually discern the truth about the divine. Right? Like, like maybe it is true. Maybe what Isaiah says is true, that the ways of the divine, the way in which the divine works, the way in which that power which sustains all things is beyond our ability. But what if that power, what if that ultimate reality, like continued to progress forward and said, I'm going to give you something that will help you discern my activity, that will help you discern what I'm up to in this world. And from the Christian perspective, in the Christian faith, we see this idea developing that we have a decoder pin about 70, let's say maybe 60, 70 years after the life of Jesus. Like the reality is there's this period that takes place where Jesus goes from Jewish Mediterranean peasant from this little village of Nazareth, crucified by Rome, to in about 100 years, there's this, this message has spread. And then you have John, the gospel of John, emerging on the scene giving us theology, giving us understanding. And John, in his opening of his gospel, says that the word became flesh and that this word made his dwelling place among us. We have this great, and I'm going to use this word, so just bear with me. We have a great cosmology given to us about Jesus. We have a great mythology given to us about Jesus. We don't have history given to us in John 1. John 1 is not giving us history. John 1 is giving us meaning. He's giving us the mythology behind what Jesus is and what we as Christians believe Jesus always was, what Jesus became, but what Jesus had been in so much that, that this person, Jesus, became this visible kind of reality. And he uses this description. He says, we saw his glory, the glory as the father's only son, full of grace and truth. Now, the, the father's only son, what we have to recognize about this metaphor, and remember, these are all metaphors helping us understand a big idea that the father's only son would have inherited all that was the father's. That's behind that. And we have to understand this father-son language within the matrix of first century. We can't rip it out. We can't say, you know, well, let's just pull it out and talk. Like, we have to recognize what was actually being said. So in the patriarchal reality of the first century, right, what, what is being said here is that this person, Jesus, is the only heir of the divine, <laughs> That this person, Jesus, gets all of what we call God and represents all of what we call God. So if John is being written somewhere around, say, the year 90, maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier, depending upon where you are, if you kind of rewind, we have this other letter in the New Testament called the letter to the Colossians. And the letter to the Colossians uh, I, is probably written somewhere around 80. Or depending upon where you move the Gospel of John, we'd say it's written before John. So the letters from the New Testament generally are written before the Gospels. The Gospels are kind of our latest portions of the New Testament. And in the letter to the Colossians, the writer gives us this really beautiful, probably fairly old 
creedal hymn that was said and stated amongst early communities that were following Jesus. And it's probably kind of what was behind what John gives us in, the, in his gospel, in this, what we call the, the evangelist John, gives us in his kind of story of the good news of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, you can read all of it if you want to. I just want to, I just want to take a few moments today and unpack the first line of it. It's found in Colossians 1, 15. I'm going to jump around a little bit to look at kind of what this writer of Colossians believed about Jesus and if it can help us understand a little bit about what maybe Jesus believed about himself. Colossians 1.15 says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So remember, this is being written probably 10, 15 years before John and it's kind of circulating around. This is a hymn that was probably quoted, maybe even sung, not sure. And it starts with, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So Paul, we'll call Paul, there's some debate as to whether or not Paul actually wrote this letter. But Paul, he believes, the writer of Colossians believes that Jesus was the perfect icon. So this word image is the Greek word we get the word icon from. And so Jesus is this visible representation, this physical living representation that was perfect. He wanted to know what God wanted in humanity, right? You wanted to know the values of God, you looked at the person of Jesus. He was this perfect icon. Now, if we fast forward ahead to back to the gospel of John, we kind of see that John believed that Jesus thought this way about himself as well, right? So in John chapter 14, we're given this kind of image and this story of the last supper in the gospel of John. And during that, Jesus is talking to his uh, 12 disciples that are there. He had more disciples than that, but he was talking to the 12 that would become known as the apostles, right? And so those 12 are there. And Jesus says this, if you know me, then you will also know my father, right? So, so John is kind of saying, listen, Jesus believed this about himself. This is the type of stuff that he taught his disciples. If you know me, you know the father. From now on, you do know the father and you have seen the father, and then a few verses later, he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me is doing his work. So we see this is one thing that, that at least the earliest followers of Jesus believed and that, the, the, that goes, traces itself back to the person of Jesus, that Jesus saw himself in some way as being this amazing reflection of the divine at work in the world. Now, here's what's fascinating. Not only did Colossians say, hey, listen, this Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God, like Paul, the writer of Colossians, also said that Jesus, yes, is the perfect image of the perfect icon, but he's not the only icon. Now, this is where some of you start to freak out on me a little bit, okay? <laughs> so don't stop listening too soon. Paul, who certainly the letter to the Colossians traces itself back to Paul, whether or not Paul wrote it or someone wrote it in Paul's name, it certainly is attached to Paul and his ministry. But if we go to Romans, which we know is an authentic letter of Paul, it's his most kind of theological letter, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says this, Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes of eternal power and divinity have been able to be understood and perceived in what he has made. Now, that's a big deal, and we miss that oftentimes as Christians because we want to live in our exclusionary world. Like, we want to live in that we've got it, nobody else does. 
But what our tradition tells us in its earliest documents is that there was this fundamental belief that you could experience and see the truth of the divine all around us. That there were minor, we, call, we could call them minor icons everywhere in the creation that reveal this, that reveal it to us. So creation is an icon of God. We look around, they, it reveals something to us if we'll tune our hearts, if we'll listen. It will tell us about how the divine works. You know what I find fascinating about the sciences and what we call evolution is to me, evolution is just simply this, uh, this looking into the world and seeing how the divine works. Like it's what Romans 1 tells us. I'm not sure why we were so freaked out about it for so long. But it's just looking in and seeing this is how the divine works. We can look at that. We know that people bear the image of God. Our story begins in a garden in this wonderful place where where what we're told is that mankind, humankind, men and women were made in the image of God. We are icons in some way of God. I think what that means is anytime you see like what Paul writes about in Galatians, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, when we see these things at play, we're seeing minor icons of God at work. And so Paul believes this in Romans about Jesus. He's teaching it when he is encouraging people to explore and understand and, and live under this way of Jesus. But it also seems, according to the gospel writers, that there was this tradition that they were handed, and what they were teaching to their communities was that Jesus seemed to believe this too. Jesus seemed to believe that he wasn't the only icon. He wasn't the only way to understand or experience or encounter God because Jesus spoke of the lilies of the field, and he talked about the sparrows, and they all revealed something about God, this invisible God. He spoke of Roman centurions who had more faith that he had ever seen in the nation of Israel, a Roman centurion who undoubtedly would have worshiped a multitude of gods. There's just no way the Roman centurion could have functioned in that world without household gods and tributes and everything else. But yet Jesus said, never have I seen faith like this in all of Israel. The gospel writers give us that. Like Jesus spoke of the prophets of old who had come. Jesus spoke of John the Baptist. All of these things revealed the divine. So Jesus believed that, yeah, there was something about him that was this perfect icon. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're that in tune. And he also believed that he wasn't the only way to experience God. And if we jump back to Colossians and we finish that verse, the writer of Colossians says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and then says, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. And I want us to understand that this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, is important because it's a metaphor about authority, not origin. That very early on in the Jesus tradition, that there became this understanding that all of creation, all these things that reflect the divine, all these things that we see around us, every power had been placed under the authority of this Jesus of Nazareth, this peasant, (laughs) Right? This, this penniless, itinerant person who traveled around speaking of a better way, a, a, a different kingdom than the empires of this world. And we shouldn't get caught up in trying to think about, oh, firstborn son of God, like how should we think about that? And what does that mean in Jesus's biological makeup? This is a metaphor that's helping us understand we have to get ourselves back into that first century makeshift. When they say firstborn, what did that mean? Well, that meant that they were the principal heir, that they were the successor of the father, that they were the one who would become the head of the house. 
It's the same principle behind that statement, seated at the right hand of the father. It was a visible image. This was, this was who was in charge when dad was gone, <laughs> right? This was the lineup. This is what was happening. This was the one who was responsible for the care of all that the father owned. And a Jewish mind would have completely understood that the entire world is owned by the Jewish God, Yahweh. That was how they thought. And so to, to make this claim was huge. And according to Matthew, Jesus seemed to believe this about himself. This wasn't just something that maybe emerged later on as an interpretation of his life, but there was something about it that could be placed in Jesus' mouth and in his conversations with people because the, the gospel of Matthew finishes with what we call the Great Commission. The Great Commission, which was Jesus in Matthew's gospel sending out not just the 12 disciples, it's Matthew saying Jesus is sending everybody out. That's the point of it. And for Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses. If you read all of Matthew, the, the thread in this is that there was one who came like Moses, and Jesus is a greater Moses. There's a law greater than the Torah. It was an absolutely scandalous thing that Matthew was writing to uh, Jewish people. And so he finishes, of course, with this statement. Jesus says, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, now go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's new rituals that you're supposed to do. And these rituals aren't done in the Torah or in Moses' name. No, they're done under my authority. And you teach them to obey, not the Torah, but you teach them to obey all that I've commanded. See, this is a big statement about what it means to follow Jesus. This is a statement. So Jesus seemed to believe that there was something powerful and unique about his role in now mediating our understanding of what it is like to live out this truth of the divine. So here's what I don't want you to miss as we kind of press in here and we go into like overdrive. Jesus is the official decoder pin of the divine for the Christian. For the Christian. So to call and be a part of a community of faith of Christianity is to say that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why the anchor verse that I want to encourage you to memorize is found in Hebrews chapter 12. And it says, let's rid ourselves of every burden and sin that easily distracts us. And let's persevere in running the race that lies before us while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't get your eyes fixed on Crossroads Church. Don't get your eyes fixed on Ryan. Don't get your eyes fixed on John Smith. Don't get your eyes fixed on Katie. Don't get your eyes fixed on the Bible. Don't get your eyes fixed on church history. Don't get your eyes fixed on the, the, the creed. You fix your eyes on Jesus, which means we owe it to ourselves to understand Jesus and to use everything available to us to get our best understanding of Jesus because Jesus leads us and perfects our faith stands in front of us. So everything that we do runs through that filter of, okay, if Jesus is this representation, if Jesus is the interpretive key to this world, to my life, to my behavior, then I've run everything through that. And so the Christian is a person that makes a choice, right? The Christian chooses to, to experience and grow in their understanding of the divine, Right? They grow in their experiences and understanding of the divine and center their actions in this world in the revelation and the authority of Jesus. Now, there's a lot of fill-ins there, okay? Some of you are frantic right now. You are not going to be able to sleep at night. So I'm going to back it up for you, okay, for just a second. 
right? So first thing that the Christian does is say, we can actually grow in our experience and our understanding of the divine. That's a fundamental kind of reality to a person who calls themselves a Christian or someone else might call you that. It's to say, we actually believe that the divine is knowable, we can understand, we can enter into, and we can experience, that there's an experiential nature. And not only do we believe those things, it's not just cognitive and experience, but it actually calls us to action in this world that we actually have to put one foot in front of the other, and there are things that we do and we center our behavior, our actions in this world, in the revelation, right? We center it in the revelation of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. So there's this faith-filled kind of response. That's what a choice is to say, okay, what has been given to me is this Jesus, and I'm gonna run it through that lens, and so we're on this journey now to say, well, what does that kind of look like to believe like Jesus? So here's what we're going to cover over the next few weeks, right? So next week, we're going to talk about scripture. What did Jesus believe about scripture? And we're going to see that Jesus believed his scriptures were sacred. And what does that mean for us? Jesus believed his scriptures were sacred. We're going to see in the following week that Jesus believed God is one. And we're going to talk about this big idea of perennial truth we're going to talk about this dome of, which, of meaning of which everyone lives in. We're going to explore how God is far bigger than our individual religions and how Jesus believed that. And we're, going to believe, we're going to look at how Jesus believes something really powerful, that God is the good and just householder of the world. That when Jesus says, our Father, right, teaching the disciples how to pray, that that image of father comes from Jewish understanding of a household and the role of a father in a household and how that gets reflected in our lives. Jesus believed that God is love. Jesus believed that God is self-giving, is a generous entity, is a generous reality, is a sacrificial reality. And then finally, we're going to look at this tricky word. Jesus believed that God is holy holy and see if we can't come to a healthy understanding of that. And I think as we journey together and we become people in a community grounded in believing like Jesus, some pretty cool things happen in our lives. I do believe we actually become better people. <laughs> and I think the more we can believe like Jesus, we will become better people. The world will become a better place. The Christian kind of way of thinking about this is on earth as it is in heaven, right? If you don't like the phrase like better people, better earth, maybe you prefer like spiritual words like, well, it's to give God glory. Well, think of it as yes. <laughs> like if I'm the best version of myself, that's, that is honoring and reflecting God, right? So I think the normal language is I just want to become a better person, right? We can all understand that. That's what it is to bring heaven to earth, I think. And here's what happens. How that happens is the more we believe like Jesus, the more we will discern like Jesus. Man, Jesus could discern amazing things, like his encounters, his experience. He knew where there was light, and he knew where there was darkness. And when we start to believe like Jesus, I believe we will begin to behave like Jesus. There's nothing more that I think we could do as people on this planet than to just behave like Jesus. I've not met too many people who have an issue with Jesus. I've met a lot of people who have issues with people who represent Jesus. They've had encounters, but I've never met somebody like, oh, that Jesus, what a jerk. What a jerk. It's usually quite the opposite. 
And so if we can actually start to believe like Jesus, we can start to behave like Jesus. This is how the gospel of John says it in really cool, big language. Jesus says, truly, truly, or amen, amen, or hey, pay attention. (laughs) I'm telling you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and will do greater ones than these. That is to say, if you believe like me, you will do like me, you will act like me. And the fruit of what I've done will be so much greater than you could ever ask or imagine. And so as we kind of wrap up here, take a few moments to breathe a little bit. Just acknowledge you're going to miss the first quarter. You know, just, just hold on to that truth. I want to thank those of you who are tuning in online. Enjoy the kickoff. For those of you that are stuck in this moment, maybe God will do something powerful. I know, it's, it's crazy to think. But I wonder if you just kind of just breathe a little bit and, and think about what is this inviting me into? What does this topic, what does this idea invite me into? What is this idea of behaving more and more like Jesus as I believe more and more like Jesus? And maybe I might experience some things that I never thought or that are counter to what I was told. I don't know what's going to happen on this journey. But I wonder if our prayer during all of this could simply be kind of a simple one. That's just, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I'm going to go on this journey because there's a part of me that believes you are this reflection. And that's been given to me. That's been handed to me. And so this song that the band has for us today, it just says, Jesus, I need you. Every moment I need you. Hear now this grace-bought heart sing out your praise forever. And there's some next steps there. There's some what's God inviting you into kind of possibilities. Maybe it's, and I hope for all of us, it's to participate over the next eight weeks to just make it a priority to attend, whether that's online or on demand or on campus, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's to go a step further and and jump into a journey group and just begin to explore with a group of people, like what is this belief about Jesus and, and how does it affect my everyday normal life? How do I live in that belief so I can behave like Jesus? And then maybe you wanna go crazy and invite somebody with you on this journey to bring somebody with you here as we launch into this, somebody that maybe has had a bad experience with a representation of Jesus. Maybe somebody misrepresented Jesus like in and out Burger was misrepresented to me. Maybe, I don't know. And maybe they just need somebody to come along and say, hey, why don't you come and explore this with me? Why don't you stand up? We're going to sing this song together, and I'll come out, give you a blessing, and then we'll go cheer on our favorite football teams.
amazing is we're standing here today or you're tuning in today or you're out in the atrium or you're listening to this on demand because there were a group of people 2,000 years ago after this historical Jesus died that they experienced this Jesus as a living presence in their midst, alive, and invited anyone who wanted to to continue in that experience of Jesus is living. And that's powerful. And it is a great mystery. And so I hope you'll join one another, that you'll go on this journey together. I want to thank everybody for being here today, for all of our volunteers that made today possible, uh, everybody in the kids and our sound booth and all of our ushers and all of our greeters and the music team. Thank you so much. We wouldn't have this without all these volunteers. And we want to just say a special thank you to Glenn and, and Sarah for all that they've given. Far, far far, far above what any job description uh, was. And so we have a, some, some party favors out in the atrium today. If you're here on campus, go grab some snacks, say hi. He'll be signing programs there uh, for $25. Uh, that'll go to their travel fund. But uh, go say hi to Glenn. Thank you. Do me a favor, lift up your hands no matter where you are and or when you are to just receive the blessing from today's experience. May God bless you and keep you in love and grace this week. And as you be begin this journey into believing like Jesus. May God open your heart to a clearer and more beautiful picture of the divine. And may any confusion and frustration in your life about God begin to give way to a perfect peace. And as we journey together, may your spirit resonate with God's spirit, confirming for you the truth of what Jesus believed. And may Jesus's beliefs become our beliefs so that Jesus's behavior can become our behavior. Amen. Have an awesome week, everybody. And finally, thank you to everyone for regular giving to support the work of our church. Our giving makes dreams like the early childhood center that we are going to open a reality. Not only does our giving make a difference in others' lives, we know that the regular practice of financial generosity is an important part of our own spiritual health. We want to make generosity simple and convenient, so you can grab a link in the show notes to give, or you can text CROSSROADS to 833-270-1344. You can also find the little orange dot on Venmo. Looking up Crossroads Colorado on Venmo, you'll see a little hope is here orange dot. Or you can give by mail. So if you fill out that connect card and start receiving quarterly letters and giving envelopes in the mail, you can also do so that way. There is so much happening right now with Crossroads. Keep your eyes on the program, the website, the feed e-newsletter. All these resources will keep you up to date and in the know. And I will always highlight a few things here. Well, you are a vital part of the Crossroads Network. Thank you for shining a light in the darkest places and bringing hope to those who need it. Have a great week.